Good morning, my Oikos family. A little more energetic this time. Good morning, family. Good morning. All right, excellent. My name is David Lefevre. Uh, I am an elder of this church, um, and I have the distinct pleasure this morning to uh, deliver God's message to you. Uh, we're in week three of a four-week series about the character of God. Uh, week one, we said, God is great. Do you remember the response? God is great. All right. God is glorious. That one seems to have stuck a little more. All right. This week, we're going to talk about how God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. And to uh, set the stage for this message, we've got a little video we're going to show you. Roll tape. I'm Stacy, and this is my story. I grew up distrusting people, feeling worthless and overlooked. And then I met John, and um, we were polar opposites. I really tried to be good my whole life. I stayed out of trouble, and he partied, and he had girlfriends, and um, was nothing like I thought my husband should be. But God led us to get married, and um, very early on, the enemy got in there and brought up some things from John's past that caused me to struggle like crazy. I was suddenly bound by fear and shame and uh, believed the lies that if we kept it secret, then that was better. Um, within those lies, too, was the thought that God wasn't good. Um, that if God really was good, he would have equipped me to handle this. Um, that if I was supposed to marry John and God was good, then God would have allowed me to be gracious and kind and be the wife that John needed. We started kind of living in isolation because of the fear and the shame and we didn't live life with people. Six and a half years later, John told me he was done. He was done with God. He was done with me, that uh, things weren't going the way that he thought they were supposed to, and he wanted out. And so eight months ago, the person that I trusted the most, the person that I gave my entire life to, the person who made me feel worthy, was gone. I had started looking to John to fulfill everything for me. He became my God, and that's not something that he could bear any longer. And so he left. And when he physically left, Jesus showed up and his presence was tangible. Um, and he showed me that I have worth not because of John, but because of him. That I'm protected, not because John is around, but because Jesus is there. Um, there was one day I was washing dishes and I was thinking about Hosea and just wondering why this obscure marriage was in the Bible. And um, God made it very clear to me that Hosea and his marriage with Gomer was me and John, and ultimately was Jesus and the church. That Gomer leaves Hosea time and time again, um, looking after things that she thinks is gonna fulfill her, and he pursues her, he buys her back. And the pain that I was feeling in wanting to pursue John, wanting to reconcile our relationship, God showed me he does it to me and to everyone else time and time again, day after day. 
we continue to search for things that we think are going to fulfill us that are just shadows of what we already have in Christ. And God loves us, and he endures the pain of us leaving. He longs for us to return and just come back so he can restore that relationship. And even though my relationship with John isn't restored, God is so good because he's shown me that with John gone, that God is all that I need. I don't have to look elsewhere. This morning we're going to look at uh, a different John, this one, the disciple of Jesus. And if you would, turn with me to John chapter 4. So if you've got a smartphone, open it up. If you don't, grab one of those uh, handy stacks of paper sitting next to you that are the paper Bibles. Um, And while you're at it, look around if you don't mind. Uh, I don't know if we've got many guests this morning, but uh, look around and see if anybody is without. It, you know, if you need to share your smartphone, give them the passcode and your bank password while you're at it, uh, or hand a Bible to somebody, but just take a look around real quick and make sure that uh, everybody's taken care of. Maybe even look them in the eye and say good morning. Very good. Very good. All right, so we're going to be in John chapter 4. And uh, for those of you in the, the paper Bible, it is uh, page 730. They're way towards the end of the Bible. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, this time John the Baptist, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? I'm going to pause here for just a second uh, and set up the story here, give you a little bit of background. Uh, According to my exhaustive research, (coughs) Wikipedia, Jacob's well, actually Jacob's well still exists today. It's in the West Bank. Um, And Jacob's well is very, very deep. And uh, at least according to the the articles I've read, it is uh, encased essentially entirely in rock, right? So even by today's standards, this, you know, digging a a well through solid rock, right, requires, even today that would be a, a feat of engineering uh, an amazing feat of engineering, right? I mean, think fracking. That's essentially what we do is bust through rock. And that was only uh, essentially invented here in the last decade. So um, a millennium ago, 
to have a well that was hewn through solid rock is an amazing feat. And remember, Jacob is the father of Joseph. Joseph was second in command to Pharaoh eventually, and after Joseph was the Exodus. That's the whole Moses story, right? So we're talking way, way, way before Jesus' time, like a millennium before Jesus' time. So the tools that they had were, not, were, were fairly rudimentary, and they dug a well through solid rock, right? So when Jesus approaches this woman and says, um, I will give you living water, she's standing at a well that has been in her family, in her village, for a millennium, something that we Americans hardly have any concept of. And she says, she asks Jesus, if you're going to provide this living water, I'd like to see your bona fides. Who are you to give some other water that's better than this well that has been hewn in rock? The first thing she asks Jesus is, to, is essentially, what is your ambition? Right? She says, prove to me through whatever it is you've done in the past that you are good enough to provide this living water. She asks for his ambition. And Jesus replies. Anyone, and I'm here on verse 13, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. A fresh bubbling spring, in other words, um, not a well that you have to work to get water from. He responds by saying, I will give you living water. Ambition is something that uh, a lot of us struggle with. Uh, for me, uh, the reason my wife and family and I are in Houston is because of my ambition. Uh, and it was kind of an ugly story. I, I took a job down here because a, uh, one of my clients had, had promised me the world right, appealed to my appetite as well, um, but mainly was going to give me this amazing title. And, uh, and so I, I moved, I relocated the family down here and soon discovered that that title was very shallow, not very deep. There wasn't a whole lot to it. The entire company was a house of cards and it fell. Only within a few months of having moved my family 800 miles. God redeemed this though. But he redeemed, he redeemed a situation I got into because of my ambition. I sought title, I sought prestige. And in, indeed, just like the water from Jacob's well still leaves us thirsty after a while, there wasn't a whole lot to that title. Uh, and uh, we experienced a, a little bit of hardship, but mind you, it's hardship by first world standards. Uh, but nevertheless, God appealed to, or the devil or whoever it was, appealed to my ambition. And we do this all the time. We seek position within companies that we work for. We try to demonstrate to our neighbors that we are keeping up with the Joneses, right? But it always leaves us thirsty. There's not a whole lot behind that ambition that really fulfills us. Jesus continues. He says, I'm sorry, the, the woman responds. So remember what Jesus said. He said, but those who drink the water I give will, be, will never be thirsty again. 
It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. So how does the woman respond? She says, please, sir, the woman said, and here in verse 15, give me this water, then I will never be thirsty again, and I won't have to go come here to get the water. Jesus says, I will give you living water that becomes a bubbling spring within you, and you will never thirst. And her first response is, give it to me. I'm really sick and tired of going to this well all the time and fetching water. I would really like to not have to do that anymore, so would you please give me this water? Right? She responds with her human nature, with her appetite, right? And appetite is something we struggle with all the time. And we know that we do because whenever uh, you know, a capital campaign goes on or uh, you know, a preacher says, talks about tithes, right? There's that gut feeling that we're just like, I don't, I, you know, I don't know if I can do that, right? And believe me, Kinder and I have felt that as well. Uh, so let's ask ourselves, why is that? What is it that we're holding on to? I love my truck. I love my house. And I really am fearful that, that we might lose those things. When we moved here to Houston, and this, this job turned out to be nothing. Um, I got a phone call on February 14th, which was a Thursday, and they said, we can't make payroll. That would be the following day, right? Worst Valentine's Day ever. We feared we would lose. We had just closed on our house the prior October. And here we were, we, we, we'd amassed this stuff. We, we bought this 100-year-old house that, that we still really like. I hate to say love, but maybe it is true. I don't know. And my wife and I wept over the possibility that we might lose all this. So what did I do? I, you know, like a good Christian boy, I went to church, we prayed about it, and uh, I, I went and talked to Pastor Aaron about it. And, you know, expecting to be comforted, he said, and I'll never forget this, it may be God's plan that you're just supposed to be poor for a while. I said, What? what? I, I'm coming to you. I'm opening my heart up to you. And you say, I have to be poor for a while. I, and I didn't, I didn't even know what to say. I'm not sure what I said to him. I'm sure it was gibberish. We, we prayed together and then I left and the whole car ride home, I'm just fuming over the fact that my pastor just told me I'm supposed to be poor. But why? Why does that cut so deep? Why? It, and it's because of our appetite. Right? It's part of our human nature. That's what we want to consume things. And worse yet, we want to consume people. I know that some of you have met people who are consumers of other people. That they, we want out of people that which they can give us. The stereotypical employer-employee relationship is your value. We are told from very early on that your value is what you can do for somebody so they can consume you. And the moment you stop doing that, they want nothing more to do with you, right? Consumers of people. And as I was thinking about this, it goes much deeper than that. What are the biggest holidays celebrated in America? Christmas, where we try very, very hard to talk about the reason for that season 
But let's think about our children, right? What is the first thing when it comes to gifts that we do with our children? We give them gifts and we wait until they're a little bit older to teach them tis better to, to receive. And we, so we set ourselves up to have to undo what it is that we've been teaching our children. Interesting. Appetite, it's, it's, it's part of our human nature. And somehow it always leaves us unfulfilled because we always seem to want more. If we truly were fulfilled, we wouldn't want more stuff. We wouldn't need to cling so tightly to our cars and our houses and, and our retirement accounts. And when tragedy happens and we face the prospect or actually lose that stuff, we go through all kinds of stages of grief, including getting angry at, at God for letting this happen. Interesting. So what does Jesus say? Well, he doesn't answer the question right away. Verse 16, he says, go and get your husband. Interesting response to give me some water. He says, go get your husband. All right. She says, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke truth. I, I, I kind of wish I could have been a, a fly on the well here to have watched this, because I, I'm reading sarcasm into this, but maybe it wasn't there. I just, I have to believe that, you know, like Jesus was grinning from ear to ear, saying, you're right, you don't, you don't have a husband, but you've had five before, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. I just, I have to imagine he was grinning from ear to ear. She says, sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes from the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. If you're looking at the paper Bibles, I am is in all block caps because what he said was, the I am, Yahweh, is here, right? So he responded with Yahweh. Skipping right from her appetite, make me no longer thirsty so I don't have to go fetch water anymore, he goes right to her heart and says, go get your husband. And he, did, he knew what he was doing. She'd had five husbands before, and this guy was not presently her husband, the man she was living with then. And it doesn't take a psychologist to understand or to, to presume what might be going on here. That in having five husbands and living with someone that was not her husband, she struggled with approval. She sought fulfillment and tried to find fulfillment in 
one husband after another. And for whatever reason, the man who she was with now either wouldn't or, or just for some reason didn't marry her. So she skipped that marriage covenant altogether and decided to instead play house with a man that was not her husband, finding approval in him. Approval is something we also, by our very nature, we struggle with. And I will tell you <clears throat> that this whole move to Houston thing, the search for am you know, the ambition, trying to find value, trying to find joy in the things that I do, trying to find joy in the stuff that that title can buy, stems from an even deeper desire to find joy in the approval of other people. Junior high was not terribly fun for me. And I won't go into the, the details because uh, they don't really matter. Um, ultimately, it, lots of people did some uh, fairly mean things. And those of you who have had teenagers or ha who were the kid getting picked on know that uh, teenagers can be really, really mean. And after a series of incidents I would probably call it betrayal and a few other things. I was at the lowest point I'd ever been in my life. <clears throat> and then, so one night, well, let me back up just a minute. So I wanted so badly everyone's approval that I probably wound up trying too hard and you know those people that, that just try too hard, right? They're a little awkward about it. Uh, and you might have actually told them, you're, you're trying too hard, right? I wanted their approval so bad, and all, I, all that I got in response was less of their approval. And so one night, I, I was so distraught, and no doubt, uh, this was probably one of the lowest points in my life, um, I went into my mother's desk where she kept all kinds of crap. Uh, my mom is a little bit of a pack rat. I love you, mom, but you're a little bit of a pack rat. And uh, there are all kinds of stuff in there. One of the things she kept in the, the top drawer, the, the pencil drawer, was a pocket knife. And late at night, probably 11 o'clock midnight or so, completely distraught, and fighting a demon whose name was depression. I grabbed the pocket knife and unfolded it. And I held it to my wrist because I just had enough. I wanted these kids' approval so bad and I would never get it. And I just wanted it all to end. So I stood there in my bathroom holding this, this knife and bawling my eyes out. When something came over me, I don't know what it was. I do know what it was. And I started singing to myself. 
the children's song, Jesus Loves Me. A children's song. Here I'm this teenager trying to be cool, right? Listening to Nirvana and trying to be cool and listening to all kinds of stuff. And I'm singing to myself, Jesus loves me. And eventually I put the knife down and went back to bed. That desire for approval grew up and became ambition because I wanted to, tell, to show everybody that I may be a loser now, that is near high, but I won't be in the future and you will see why. So I'm going to set out. I'm going to do my darndest to be successful. So that approval grew up and became ambition so that I could feed my appetite. I looked for joy in all the wrong places. I looked for joy in mean kids. I looked for joy in the things I could do and accomplish. And I looked for joy in the things I could buy or consume with that. But at the end of it all, I knew deep down where my joy was. And that's why I sang the song that I sang. Jesus continues, just then, I'm here in verse 27, just then the disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask. What do you want with her? Or why were you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see the man, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. kind of hard words, right? These are the guys that he's been walking with for quite a while. And they're like, they're going and fetching his food for him, right? They went into town to go buy him food and they come back and they're like, dude, you need to eat. You look terrible. And he says, I have a food you know nothing about. That's not very nice, Jesus. We just got you food. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. They're just in total disbelief. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest, but I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike? You know the saying, one plants and another harvest? Well, it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get together the harvest. Jesus does this a lot, by the way. He'll be kind of cryptic with the crowds, or in this case, with an individual. And with his disciples, he brings hard truth. I have a food you know nothing about, 
All right, let's just make sure you guys remember <laughs> um, that you still need to learn a lot from me. And then he explains a lot more to his disciples, and he does so here. He says, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God. That is, his appetite is filled by doing the will of God who sent me, who sent Jesus, and from finishing his work. He says, find joy in obeying God. Find joy in the everyday because God created the everyday. Then Jesus says, you know the saying, four months between planting and harvest, and I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. I'm going to skip down to the end. He says, I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will gather the harvest. He speaks to ambition. The, one of the reasons we find joy in ambition is because we started, it's pride, right? We started it. We finished it. This is my task. I did this. I am valuable. But Jesus says, don't do that. Instead, he says, I'm going to send you where somebody else has already started the work, meaning you can't take credit for it. And when I send you, you will know that somebody has already done the work ahead of you. Go where God has prepared a way. Find joy in doing his work and following his plan for your life, not your own. And it's a bit of a stretch, but he also talks about approval. It is God who sent Jesus. It is God who provides. If we go down to, to verse 36, it says, the harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester of life. Find your joy in the approval of our heavenly father. There's a reason there's only, at the beginning of the only prayer that Jesus instructs us to pray, he begins by saying, our Father. He desperately desires a relationship with us. So when we feel that fear of losing things, when we are hurt by rumors, when we work so hard to find satisfaction in the things that we do and get frustrated when we aren't able to do them, he asks us to find our joy in him. How do we do that? Well, the video this morning actually talked about that, if you caught it. God desires a relationship with us and he desires us to have a relationship with each other. Change is a community process. Ch sin, approval, ambition, appetite, is a community concern. So while I hope that God has spoken to you today, it is highly unlikely he's telling you to take this message, go back, and try and change yourself. In fact, I know that's not what he's telling you because only God can change the human heart. And even if we go home and we, we 
sit down and we pray, Lord God, change my heart. That's not the end. He wants you to be with other people. The body of Christ is all of us. Change is a community process. Sin is a community concern. That's why we talk about missional community so much. Because it's in these groups that the real body of Christ is realized and his kingdom comes. The message for us all today, I believe in my heart of hearts, is this. Believe in God's goodness. Because when we do, we don't have to look elsewhere. When we do look elsewhere, it's because we don't trust or have faith in His goodness. And salvation comes from faith. The message is, just like the children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Because the Bible tells me so. Little ones, all of us, to Him we belong. We are weak, but He is strong. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, forgive us for calling other people unbelievers. We are the unbelievers. We make a confession of our faith. And then hours or even minutes later, we find ourselves wanting to be filled by something or someone. And that is unbelief. There's a gap between what we confess and how we live, confessional faith and functional faith. God, all we can do is lay ourselves at your feet and confess that we are by very nature sinful and unclean. We look for approval in others. We look for, to be fed by things and other people. We look to prove ourselves in our actions because we don't believe in your goodness. But like a father, you stand with open arms to receive each one of us every day when we come to you and say, Father, forgive us. Strengthen us, encourage us, help us to Sacrifice the idols that we make out of our ambition, our appetite, and our approval. And to look to your goodness, to be satisfied in it and you alone. Lord God, we are so incredibly thankful for your love that is infinite and boundless. You love us, and this we know, because the Bible tells us so. 
We are weak, but you are strong. And we are so thankful to you we belong. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.